Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Jan, relationships can be fraught affairs. Uh, Yeah, tremendously demanding at times. Les Zig explores one such fraught union in his novel August Falling. So, Les, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me on. Now, as a bloke to a bloke, what's a bloke to do? I mean, our protagonist, August Pity, is trying to get back on the horse, so to speak, after a particularly traumatic marriage. And he meets Julie. And this is uh, trauma personified um, because he wants to ask her out. I'm sorry to be so presumptuous, I say, but I I was sitting there with my nephew. He's the bald-headed baby attached to my sister's breast. And and I know it's trite, especially from a guy so far out of your league. I I may as well build a rocket ship to get to you. And being stunning and me being me, not that I'm objectifying you, that is. And um, this is probably something you get a lot, probably so much that you know that what I'm going to say, which is something because I'm not even sure what I'm going to say. I pause, hoping she'll save me, but she waits. And and I'm not even this sort of guy, really, the, the sort who can approach beautiful women in public totally randomly. That's not me. I could It could never be me. But I saw you getting your coffee, and I was wondering if it's not, not too forward, although I guess it is forward, me accosting you like this. And I was wondering, although you're probably not interested, and I wouldn't blame you for not being interested, is this what a bloke has to go through? It's what some blokes have to go through. I mean, I think a lot of people, whether they're men or women, before they approach someone and express interest, I think you have that internal monologue going on in your head and it's firing off all the sort of possibilities. Uh, And one thing I found when I have that monologue going on in my head is I can rehearse it 100 ways and I am guaranteed that when I go up, it is not going to turn out one single one of those ways. But it, it, there's also other agenda behind it all in terms, well, the Me Too campaign and, and all of these other uh, concerns that you've got rambling around in your head. You know, this is just bloke to bloke and yeah. nobody else is listening, you know. Oh, well, you never know, you know, what you're going to say, which could be misconstrued and which could be totally condemned and all that. I mean, I look at it, August as um, someone who's extremely sensitive and just trying to find his place and when you see someone who is idolized for a week because in the book he actually sees her you know day after day for a week and he idolizes her and imagines her name and she has a little tattoo and he imagines what that might be and all that sort of stuff uh he's built her up so much in his head that he's just intimidated when he goes up to her and totally implodes and that fantasy life behind a relationship before you even meet someone yeah but then there are other factors in august's makeup as well yeah so august is coming out of a really bad relationship uh he's i won't refer to what his sister calls his ex-wife um but the circumstances of that relationship devastated him and raised whatever confidence he had. I always look at August as someone who didn't have a lot of confidence because of circumstances in his family life. His parents died when he was a little bit younger and all that sort of stuff. So as I said, he was sen- he's sensitive. Um, but then going into that marriage where he was dominated psychologically in a way and coward and probably didn't have room to express himself or to grow or to develop any real self-belief, 
He then meets Julie, um, and he really doesn't know how to handle someone who's built up this highly in his head. Well, he's uh, built up an expectation yeah. about it. So how do you live up to that yourself, especially if you're a shy and retiring type? But also then uh, August's work life. Yep, call centre. Uh, geez, I don't insult people, you know, insult people who are working in call centres, but I was trying to find something where... He was going to be doing a job which was totally by by rote. He, you know, he'd have a script. He couldn't be himself. And when situations came come up, and in in the call centre, he has a person he calls who abuses him. He just doesn't know how to handle it. He doesn't know how to adapt. He doesn't know how to take care of himself. But it's, it's also a job without prospects. Yeah. But also then, his um, life is without prospects. His so life when is the book opens, prospects. yeah. Well, let's let's add to that dimension uh, because he wants to be a writer. What prospects are there? In well, I, as a writer myself, <laughs> for, you know, over thirty years, yeah, um, I've infused a lot of my uh, journey into August's life. Um, my previous book, Just in the Week in Suburbia, uh, it got a bit of a response that August gets with his book that, you know, it's a good book, but we don't think we'll be able to sell it, um, So, <laughs> which came from everyone but Pantera Press. Uh, so, yeah, I've, I've tried to give August like a really, uh, a life where he's just asphyxiated, he's almost claustrophobic in a way, but he's just trying to find a way to be himself. But he does manage to meet Julie, yep. uh, etc. But again, with this work, prospect uh part of the interaction with julie what work do you do well it's not exactly a an no, no it's not like you know i dispose bombs uh disarm <laughs> bombs for a living or anything like that you know and, and as a writer myself like you know I, I recall a few years ago um and like i'm 48 so this is like when i'm mid 40s and i was at a bar and i started talking to a woman and she goes what do you do and i said i'm a writer which is you know i have a full-time job but like i said i'm a writer she goes ah do you still live at home with your parents? <laughs> again, there are these assumptions around people, their work, but it, it's also in a relationship. And, and basically the book goes through the stages of this relationship yeah. where you're trying to make a connection, but uh, as with asking someone, el- out, someone out, there are assumptions behind that. When you meet, you start to divulge who you are, but then... We make assumptions about writers, about people in other careers. And that's, I mean, the book opens like that with August talking about the preconceptions, you know, the first impressions and the way our in, you know, internal monologue will write a whole narrative for a person we see based entirely on preconceptions. And, I mean, I think the really the big thing for August when he meets Julie is he probably feels he can start being himself and that's not something he's ever experienced although it's not always an attractive prospect because he is very neurotic um he is an anxious uh anxiety-based personality and he is carrying all this baggage well this also then leads to um sex and the encounters with Julie initially are, how shall we put this not entirely successful no they're inept so i mean <laughs> uh I mean, with August also, I think in that sort of context, he's met someone who's sexually confident um, and that intimidates him more than, you know, what his previous relationship was like. And, you know, she's an intelligent, smart, funny, beautiful woman and he's immediately just thinking, I'm batting way out of my league. And then when it comes to sex, it's just he's feeling, how am I ever going to live up to, Mm. you know, to who this woman is? And... 
unfortunately for him, he you know he experiences some issues. He experiences some issues, but some of that is is sort of set because of the fact that he has been uh, undone, intimidated. Yep. Because of his previous marriage, yeah, and so he's got to regain that confidence, etc. Yeah, I, I look at it too. That I think possibly, you know, the, the previous marriage, he might have even been. Oh, geez, I'm just trying to sort of speak diplomatically. He, he, um, he might have been basically on command because his previous wife was such a domineering personality, and he responded to her because that's all he knew, and now he has this freedom to be himself but he doesn't actually know how to deal with it and once he um you know once he's with julie in an intimate situation uh he just builds up in his head so much how am i going to do this what if i can't do this and i'm sure a lot of men have experienced this in their lives where they're going into a situation of intimacy and They've just put so much pressure on themselves that they haven't gotten the outcome they. But it's also pressure put on them uh, externally. I mean, prowess, dominance, all of these sorts of images that men have to go through as well. Um, And August, August just doesn't feel like he's a man as it is. You know, yeah, he feels like a half man as it is. Now, just to digress slightly, writing sex. How do you do that successfully? Uh, Well. For me, with the sex scenes, they always... They can't be gratuitous. They can't be just in there for the sake of being in there. And with my previous book, I saw a couple of people said, you know, they're gratuitous. And it was like, no, they're actually in there because they portray the characters where they are psychologically and the dynamic that they're sharing at that point in time. So with August, like, I thought, he just needs to be totally open. And he's just going to be a man's point of view as opposed to, like, if a woman wrote sex, she would write it differently to a man. So with a man, uh, with the way I wrote it for August, it was very straightforward, but it still had to reflect where the characters were so- psychologically at that point in the story. But there are so many clichés associated with sex scenes. How do you avoid that? Jeez, that's a difficult <laughs> one. Um, because the, the, these are not clichés. No. Scenes. I mean, I work as an editor in another life, so in terms of when I write, I know the stuff I should be looking out for. In terms of whenever I'm writing, whether it's sex or any scene, once I get to a point in the story and I've done something and I stop and think, is that cliche? Is that what's expected? Or do I need to polarise this in some way? So with August, it really fit his character that the sex scenes are polarised and that, you know, in the... I think there's two two full-on sex scenes and one where Julie really just takes command and the second one where August is just in charge but inept. Hmm. And... Again, they reflect where those characters are given the situation at that time. At the time in their yeah. relationship, but now... Oh, and also just the time where they are... Like with Julie, I recall the, f- the first one happens shortly after her. she visits her aunt who's uh, catatonic. And that, that really um, uh, distresses her. It really leaves her frustrated and angry. And that's sort of the way the sex plays out from that scene. Hmm. The other thing then is, now that this relationship has been established, one has to encounter the past, yep. so to speak. The past that you're dealing with as, as an individual, but then the past of your partner. And this is where the real challenge comes in. Yeah. So, 
I'm not going to name the book, but I read another book which was about a relationship and the characters were so perfect and everything was convenient and everything fell into place and it really, really got me angry <laughs> because I was thinking, real life's not like that. We all have baggage. So I thought, I'm going to create this story and the two characters are going to have a lot of baggage which they have to deal with and they have to reconcile if they're to move forward. But the question is, can you actually ever reconcile someone's past? And the nature of the past, what is acceptable? Because, again, going back to this notion of assumptions, uh, etc., what is um, permissible? What do you think is appropriate, unacceptable? And what does that do to your identity if you accept the other person's past? Yeah, with August... Uh, Again, it comes back to preconceptions about Julius' past and the way he should respond is the way most people would respond. But at the heart of it is like she is still the person she is. You know, so how much do you forgive, or not forgive someone, but how much do you accept that someone's past is just their past and something that's dismissible because you're building a future from that point on? But you've got August thinking of returning to his former wife, even though he was compromised in that position. Because it's going to offer... A sort of security, security and comfort, and financial a, a yep. job in a in, in a carpet. Yeah, and showroom. for him, it, it would reproduce the facsimile of the reality he once felt he had. But again, that was a facsimile. It wasn't never a real relationship as he believed it was. But I think a lot of people uh, either go back to relationships or in relationships which aren't exactly working, but it's more comfortable for them to be in it rather than go out to the unknown and try and move forward from there. But it speaks to that whole question then of relationships, uh, what it does to shape one's identity, the compromises, the sacrifices, and the rewards that are inherent in a relationship. Yeah, I I think with any relationship, there's always going to be compromises because that's just, you know, you, you can't just be a tyrant. But I think also... Whatever the relationship, you should be growing as a person. And with August in his first relationship, he was being smothered as a person. He couldn't be the person he's destined to be, I guess is the best way of putting it. Um, but that offered security, that offered comfort, that you know that was the, what he knew for so many years. And his life was controlled. And in that case, he didn't have to make decisions for himself. Someone else was doing all the decision-making. And for him, that was you know easy because without that, he faces... The, you know, the world and the terror of making his own decisions. And compromise can be gross in a way. It's just how we look at it. I mean, yeah. I look at it as like, do you have compromise or do you have some like suffocation? So, I mean, there's two ways you can go. If you're suffocated in a relationship, then that's probably not the best for your emotional, spiritual, intellectual growth. But if you're compromising and you're, you create this new entity, which isn't just you or them, but us, and so when you create that new identity, if that us is actually growing as an entity and it's growing positively, then you have to say, well, whatever decisions you're making in that relationship are the right ones. Mm-hmm. They're constructive. Mm. Well, Les, unfortunately, we're going to have to end the discussion That's... there yep. um, because Jan's got her guest. But the book is August Falling, the author, Les Zig, and it's from Pantera Press. Yep. Thank you, Les. Well, Thanks. my author today was given a loose-leaf folder full of notes and was asked to turn it into a biography, and that's what she did, and she's here today to talk about it. Mary Rillis clark welcome. Thank you, Jan. I'm going to get you to start by reading the very first paragraph of the introduction. Nina Stanton was looking fabulous when I called to see her in early April 2009. 
lustrous hair framed a perfect made-up face with her trademark quirky glasses, deep red lipstick and sparkling smile. Wearing an asymmetrical black dress from one of her favourite Japanese designers, flamboyant orange bead necklace and silk embroidered slip-on shoes, she could have been on the front cover of Vogue. She glowed, though we both knew she was dying and that it took two hours each morning to create that look. Right, well, when somebody writes their biography, it's usually with photos of family and friends and lifetime achievements. But Nina Stanton asked you to include other things in this biography. Well, she did, and that was the challenge. Um, She had completed writing uh, her own life story in connection with objects in the Johnston Collection, which was a museum that she was director of at the time. And, but she wanted those objects not only to reflect her own life symbolically, uh, emotionally, metaphorically, she wanted them set into the context of the decorative arts. Well, look, as an example, there's a beautiful photograph of two ornate candlesticks. They're from the 18th century. And we get the story about um, Joshua, uh, Josiah Wedgwood? Josiah. Josiah Wedgwood. He used a commission... To, that was going to he was going to lose money from to make turn it into a creative management story. Oh, he was a smart operator. <laughs> this commission was from um, Empress Catherine of Russia. She wanted a fifty-person dinner set, dinner service, and each each one of those pieces is different. Each plate, for example, had an in, engraving etching of one of the beautiful country houses in, in England. So all the owners of these country houses wanted their house to be on a plate. Absolutely, yes. And then yeah. it, before it went to um, Catherine, it went on show and he charged people admission. <laughs> it was a huge event at the time, enormous. And, of course, he made a lot of money from that because it was the thing to, to, to see. So we have these two candlesticks which are in the Johnson Collection of Private House Museum here in Melbourne. And... Uh, How did that equate to Nina Stanton's life? Well, what she admired in Josiah Wedgwood was his marketing skills because there were a lot of wonderful potters around at the time, um, but she could see that he was promoting himself in 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 a unique way. So at the time... At the time that that occurs in the book, she's actually the director of the museum in Norfolk Island. And one of the challenges of any museum is promoting it, getting people to come back more than once. And she initiated a series of marvellous events, um, happenings for tourists like tag-along tours because the Norfolk Island Museum is a whole series of different um, penal buildings. And so tag-along tours, she would lead the way in one car and other cars followed and then they would go through that particular building, maybe... Quality Row or... or she organised dinner parties in all the different she colleges. She did, yes. And she also organised a play, which is still going on, apparently, yeah, in Northern Yes, Ireland. it's no longer actually part of the museum. It's in the township itself of, of Burnt Pine, but it was an enormous success. It had five major characters and it relayed the whole history of Norfolk Island in drama. Well, the other thing about Norfolk Island was the rats. So we also see another little <laughs> bowl that has rats sculptured in the legs yes, of, um, yes. of the bowl. But, you know, this 
so we get the history, we get um, other pieces of porcelain, and I learned so much. I learned about soft and hard pastes and the differences in earthenware and porcelain and bone china, and all the, also the history making of uh, porcelain in China and England. Mm. And were these all in Nina's notes, or did you have to do this research? And well, she had she had started the process of writing them in in context, and she used to run. Um, courses at the Johnson Collection. So she had a lot of notes referring to the context of different pieces in the collection. But uh, for for much of the manuscript that she gave me, there was just one picture and a completely blank page. (laughs) And (laughs) if I could... There was an enormous amount of research because I started up, although I grew up in a household in in England where beautiful objects were treasured by my mother in particular, Mm. uh, I had a very sketchy knowledge of Georgian and Regency glass and silver and mm. furniture, etc. So it was a huge learning curve for me, and uh, but a very rewarding one. Another piece of porcelain that's written about is this statue, this beautiful white porcelain statue yes. of a, a Chinese goddess, Guan Yin, the goddess of mercy. And she holds in her hand a file to sprinkle on those in need. And Nina was in need. Well, to meet her, you would never in a million years imagine what she had survived in the dysfunctional, very unhappy childhood home, anorexia as a teenager, going to London, suffering from agoraphobia. Mm. She was, she had enormous, enormous problems to overcome, but she was very, very determined. And when she found her passion, it gave her a goal. And she found her passion working in Dickens' old curiosity shop in London. She also found her passion with a number of men. She certainly she did, about. yes. <laughs> it was Tom in, uh, that she went yeah. over to overseas with first. And she writes about them very openly. There's Darren and Stefan and Seamus and Nick. And I love the way that she relates furniture to these fellas. And now Nick... This romance was associated with a Robert Adams firepiece surround and they both turned out to be a copy. (laughs) (laughs) Not a good romance, that one. He wasn't a good boyfriend. I learned a lot about furniture and the history of furniture making, such as Chippendale, Mm. but especially about tables and also how these tables related to men. Well, I think if you think about furniture, a lot of it's very masculine. It's strong, solid. And durable, like the card table. How yeah. did the card table and and uh, first boyfriend get get mixed together? <laughs> there's a there's a lovely connection with the card table because it had a dual purpose, and uh, her first boyfriend was Stefan, and they used to creep into Nina's father's car, which was in the driveway. And the dual purpose was using the car as their own <laughs> secret bedroom, virtually. <laughs> and then with um, as, as, as Seamus, there was the refractory table, that whole enjoyment of food and bodies that are brought together. And Darren was oyster veneer. I'd never <laughs> heard of oyster veneer. Oh, well, it was, it was a very expensive process, oyster veneer. And, it, and just it didn't like last Darren was. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, just as Nina moved around, historically people also moved around with their trunks, you know, made out of tough oak. 
But then, uh, as we read in the history, the trunks got drawers and then they turned into estate cupboards. And, well, these travelled just as Nina. Now, she worked overseas and then she... Mm. All up the eastern states of Australia. And finally, she set up her own business here in Melbourne. And this is when, when you met her. Yes, I did. Yes, I was working on an exhibition um, with a company and... It was a very, it was a Telangi State Forest. It was a discovery centre. And it was a very complex exhibition. And Nina was called in as a consultant to manage the whole project. She was the first museum consultant possibly in the world. I'm not sure about that. She was certainly (laughs) certainly one of the first in Australia. And she worked all over the country. She, She managed events. She managed curated exhibition she did a whole range of the exhibition centre here in Melbourne apparently she organised uh, what that was a, a, a thing to set up and she organised volunteers well her office was in the basement of the exhibition building in yeah. in Melbourne and she organised a whole series of volunteers to research the history and they were appalled that that had never been done before mm. and she uses a, a silver soup tureen as a, an emotional link to those volunteers and all the all the ingredients that they brought together, and which was then paved the way for a major history of the exhibition building by David Dunstan. And even our, uh, the, the Treasury Faults, she was the one who actually sort of set it up as a museum too. Well, she, she, in, she and I both worked on an exhibition called the History of Melbourne Exhibition. <laughs> when the, the Treasury was reopened by Jeff Kennett, after being restored, that was the first exhibition to go in there and Nina was appointed first director of the exhibition building. No, I mean the old treasury building, sorry. And um, So we, we get this information about her and uh, a lot of the objects that she sees, but also about um, Mr Johnson who set up his house and, yeah. and just where he got his furniture from and then yeah. also the Copeland Foundation. Alex yeah. Copeland. Oh, he, he was a character. Oh, <laughs> what's the difference between a collector and a hoarder? <laughs> well, I think uh, William Johnson was a collector. He had an eye for, for beautiful things yes. and he looked after them. He bought and sold them, of course, because he was an antique dealer, whereas was Alex Copeland collected Everything from total trash to, to pieces of exquisite beauty. Yeah. And, and How many tons of rubbish did she have to clean out? I think there was about t- uh, oh. 30 tons. I'm not absolutely sure. I'd have to double check it. <laughs> it was a but lot. It was a huge, huge amount. She, the sort of thing he collected were those free leaflets get put in your letterbox. He had piles of them everywhere. Oh. And the place was absolutely filthy. Yeah, but it was actually the foundation that, from the sale of his house and goods, that well, he um, asked, he made Nina his executor mm, without consulting her, and she realised he wanted it to be a house museum on the lines of the Johnson collection, mm. but she knew that that it wasn't going to work, no. so she had to go to court to change the will but that 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 all went relatively smoothly, even though at the time she had a second bout of cancer she had a lung cancer and with the money that for the sale of the house and all the objects in the house she was able to establish the copeland foundation which gives grants for cultural heritage mm. and also gave grants to the making of this book it now did, this is the yeah. book that i want to come back to because i want to talk about well, the title a tear in the glass and uh, mary can you explain the illustration on this, please. Well, this is a very simple Georgian glass, which is it, it's, it's exquisite, and it has a tear in the stem, and that tear in the stem 
was representative of Nina's throat. She had the third and final bout of cancer, was in the esophagus, and well, the, the heart, when, when you know that background story and you look at that image of that glass with that distinctive tear in the stem of it, it's, it's heartbreaking, really. It um, is. Yeah, and evocative. She, of, she talks about having to swallow the um, chemotherapy medicine and you know, yeah. it's such an incredible, incredible woman. Yes. <laughs> yes, she I, was. Um, we're here in Melbourne. We, I think we're very lucky to have had her and her dynamic. Well, the wonderful thing do about things. doing this, this book, which, was, which really sustained me when it was pretty challenging work-wise, is that it, it ensures her legacy. Absolutely. A quote from the book, To meet Nina, adorned as, as to meet a beautiful, confident and powerful woman, publicly there was no hint of the insecurities that plagued her most of her life. Well, I think she'd be very, very proud of this book, Mary Arellis Clark. It's just a beautiful book. A, a hundred artefacts that illustrate her life. Or is it the power that they hold these beautiful things to transform us? Mary Rillis Clark, thank you. This uh, the book is a tear in the glass, and it's by Anchor Books. And I had been talking to Les Zig about his novel August Falling, which was from Pantera Press. So that takes us out for another week. More books next week. More books Listening. next week.